Have you ever done something that you haven't done in a long time and it just doesn't feel like it did before? Or it just seems so different than what you recall? I know when Diane and I go back to the area that we're from, uh, we grew up about 12 miles or so from each other uh, in rural western New York. And most things are just not as we remember them. Uh, we drive by them, the house that she grew up in, and, and a lot of changes since that was sold not too many years ago. But by the house that, that I grew up in, and that was sold a long time ago, and has had different people living there, uh, and it just looks totally different. Uh, businesses that were open and seemed to be doing well are now closed. Uh, you know, you drive by what used to be a, a grape vineyard. Um, that's where Concord grapes are, quite a few. Uh, and the grape vineyard has all grown up. Or uh, there was a, a man that had planted in an apple orchard and did really well, and then he just got tired of all of the, the sprays and everything that he needed to use to be able to have a decent crop. And so it's all grown up now. Uh, and not to mention people, you know, I mean, some of these people, they've gotten really old, you know, and I don't understand it. You know, people that I went to school with, and man, they're old people. Um, but things change, you know, and there's a lot of things that you maybe looked at as a child and thought, you know, that was really huge, you know, it was really big. And, you know, you see it as an adult and, you know, it's just not as big as you remembered it being. Or, or things that you believed as a child. And since then you have learned that they're not true. Uh, I grew up uh, on Route 20 in western New York. It used to be one of the main highways. And they put the throughway in and took a lot of the traffic. But um, right where we were in our backyard were uh, six railroad tracks. And so there was a, a bridge that went over those tracks and it was like right beside our house. And I remember uh, my brother, uh, who was eight years older than me, I remember being down near the tracks with him and some other people and he, he says, oh, I'm just going to jump off of here. And so he was up by the bridge, and that was quite a ways down, probably 25, 30 feet down. And so he he jumped, and you know, everybody thought, you know, they ran around the other side, and he wasn't there. Well, where he was standing, there was a, a little drop of about three feet. And so he just jumped down there and, and hid. Uh, so things, you know, sometimes are not what you thought they were. But like I said, things change with time. But praise God, he does not. Let's pray. Father, I just give you thanks that you are the same yesterday, today, and not just tomorrow, but forever. And Lord, that you are unchanging. So Father, uh, you are the, the rock that we can anchor ourselves to. And I praise you for that, that you allow me to be able to do that. Uh, there's no reason why I should be allowed to do that, but you allow me to. 
And I just thank you and praise you uh, for that privilege. And Lord, uh, I know I've I've changed over the years. My relationship with you has has changed from not being a believer to becoming a believer and uh, to growing in your word and learning more and going into the ministry and uh, Lord serving people in um, three different states and all. And so I've, I've changed, but Lord, you haven't. And I just praise you for that. So Father, as we look into your word right now, Lord, help us to see what it is that you want us to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's that time again. Uh, and it seems like it's been quite a while. Quite a while. Uh, not time to talk about giving or stewardship. I just did that a few weeks ago. But it's time to talk about communion or the Eucharist. Now, I, I looked up definitions here of those two words. And the Eucharist, it says it's a Christian service, ceremony, or sacrament commemorating the Last Supper in which bread and wine are consecrated and consumed. The consecrated elements, especially the bread. Now, the definition for communion is much wider than that, uh, taking in secular things as well, uh, because first definition is the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is a mental or spiritual level. Okay, and then the second definition is the service of Christian worship at which bread and wine are consecrated and shared. Well, the word communion, uh, the way it's translated in the King James Bible, uh, the Greek word is koinonia, and it means a partnership or participation or a social intercourse, a fellowship, a communication. So uh, that's how we need to, that's how I need to think about it. Well, most Protestant churches that I've been associated with uh, they call it communion, not um, Eucharist. When I, when I think about the word Eucharist, I guess I think more like the Catholic Church or Episcopalian Church or Lutheran Church, whatever. So, But no matter what you call it, I'm going to speak about it here. Okay. Now, the Catholic Church, they participate in communion whenever they have Mass, and they have Mass daily. So, you know, as a priest, you would be serving communion daily. Uh, now, some churches that we've gone to uh, since we retired, they have communion weekly. And uh, when I first retired and we went to a church that we really liked in Lexington, and they served communion weekly, and I wasn't sure how I was going to like that, but uh, I do. And uh, the church that we're going to now, Life Church, they don't do it weekly, and I, I miss it now. Um, but churches do it in different ways. Uh, none of them are wrong. It's just very just the way the pastor, the people uh, prefer to do it. Uh, the ch all the churches that I served were small churches. And so people came up uh, single file and received the elements. Uh, before I got there, people would come up and they would kneel at the altar and you know, the pastor would go along uh, the altar and serve each one, and then those people would get up, and some more people would come up. And I said, no, nah, we're not going to do that. Okay, we're going to come up 
single file. If you want to kneel, you know, the altar's there. Uh, you can kneel before or after or during if you come up and kneel in front of me. Um, so it's however you want to do. Uh, and I would use one cup or one chalice for the juice. Uh, now some churches, some denominations use wine. Um, I don't think the United Methodist Church allows that. They allow a lot of other things that so they shouldn't, but they don't allow that, which is fine with me. Uh, and we would use one loaf of bread. Uh, now, some churches use bread. They cut it up into little squares. Other ch ch churches use wafers, the little discs, or some like a little, I call it a chiclet, <laughs> a little thing. Uh, the way we do communion at Life Church, uh, when it's going to be a, a communion day, uh, when you go into the sanctuary, on every seat in the sanctuary, there's a little um, cup, I guess it has a juice in it, and that's sealed. And then on top of that, there's a little chiclet, um, and that's sealed on top of there. Uh, so, but the way we would do it uh, would be that uh, my wife always, well, not always, but almost always, served communion with me. Uh, and she would have the bread, I would have the juice. And somebody would come up, they'd break off a piece of the bread, and they would dip it into the juice. Now, this is known as intinction, and that's just what the word means, uh, dipping bread into the juice or wine. Uh, some people didn't care for that, okay? So at the last church where we served, uh, we had both, okay? I would have the chalice in one hand, and I'd have this tray with... Uh, bunch of little plastic cups in there with juice in it and so they would receive the bread from my wife and then it was up to them if they wanted one of the cups they could take it if they wanted to dip it into the, the common cup they could do that so um, was everybody happy eh, no okay but I did something this past weekend that I have not done in over 45 years and that is that I went to the Catholic Church uh, I took my grandson Noah. Uh, this is part of his man year. Uh, I'm taking him to some different churches so he can see how other people worship. Uh, and I had forgotten just how liturgical it was. Now, the Catholic church that I went to was the little church, and this church was larger. Um, I mean, we went Saturday evening and there was I don't know, 125 people, give or take a few. But it just, you know, the, the liturgy and the, the ritual stuff that um, I had really forgotten about. But I have to tell you, one thing that I really miss about serving a church is doing communion, uh, consecrating the elements, and going through the, the liturgy of that, which... At the churches I served, I wrote my own liturgy, um, but uh, I, re I really miss that. So, communion. The first communion was when Jesus started it at what we call the Last Supper. Uh, it came out of the observance of Passover, and I'll talk more about that first communion shortly. So, when did all this get started in the church? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
Okay, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Okay, now let's move on to verses 46 and 47. It says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Um, so we can gather a lot from these verses. Okay, let's look at verse 42 first. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Um, the breaking of bread. You, you may be familiar with that uh, spiritual song, you know, we break bread together on our knees. Uh, and that's what it sounds like, maybe, that they did. But that comes from verse 42 even though it says nothing about being on their knees, although we know that they reclined at the table. Uh, but at least for Christians, that's how we interpret that verse. But the Bible scholars believe that it was more than just bread, that the early Christians ate, ate their meals together. It was kind of like having a potluck or a covered dish dinner every day, okay? because you would be there with all of the other believers. Now, to get an understanding, you would need how you would need to be ready. Uh, you need to look at verses 44 and 45 of Acts chapter 2. It says, All believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, the message puts it like this, And all the believers lived in, a, in wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. So these are people that value their time together uh, and they valued each other. And so much that they ate their meals together just so they could be together. Now, we need to remember that being a Christian at that time was not a popular thing, that it was dangerous and it could even be deadly. So the time that they had was important. Now, I think it was, you know, maybe like when you spend time together with family or friends, people that you love, maybe you hadn't seen in a while, but this was an everyday thing that these people got together just to enjoy the company of each other. So that is what they would think of as communion, okay? Not just the bread and the juice, but even though that was a part of it, uh, but that's how they would think of communion, just being together and communing, communicating. Uh, like the definition of communion said, the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. Okay? Do believers view communion in the same way? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay, one of the churches that I served, uh, the man that was pastor there before me, uh, communion was very infrequent. Uh, they maybe would they would do it, you know, around Easter time and uh, World Communion Sunday, which I'll mention a little bit later. 
Uh, and that was it. Well, when I came, we started doing it the first Sunday of the month. And they had a, a suggestion box at the back of the church. And one person's comment was something like this. Uh, why do we have to have communion every month? Is it so the pastor doesn't have to bother to write as long of a sermon? Well, I don't know who that person was. But one thing I do know is communion didn't really mean that much to them. Uh, as we do communion today, to me, it is a, a sacred time. It's a time to prepare your heart. Uh, it may not have been seen that way by the early communion or the early Christians, but they were communing because of the Lord. But I don't know as they had a service of any kind that accompanied their breaking of bread. Uh, you know, it says that they got together you know, for their meals and prayer. So uh, maybe similar to when we say grace before a meal, um, wasn't there, don't know. So most churches, you know, they're not like that. And, and this to me is where small groups or life groups come in uh, because they bring that kind of intimacy. Now the early church, it sounds like, you know, that was kind of a large gathering. A small group should be, you know, 8, 10, 12 people. Uh, and, you know, you get that intimacy. You get that uh, closeness that you can't in a church of a thousand people. You really can't get it in a church of 60 people or 40 people. Uh, but I'm going to share the words of a Billy Crockett song from many years ago. If you remember Billy Crockett, this has to be, I don't know, around 40 years old. Um, but these are the words. It says, find a good old neighborhood, a square block of the USA. Stake your claim, claim your space, sink your roots, and leave your days. Build a fence, close it in, raise a lawn, and grow some kids. Make a name, name your friends. That's the American way to live. 41 houses, only one street. 41 yards, 82 trees, 41 mowers, all sitting in sheds, 41 families in over their heads. And everybody's got their own everything, from the Bronx to Hollywood, Mont Montreal to Mexico. Fever grows, go for gold. Gain the world and lose your soul. Push and shove and don't look back. Absolute success attack. Insulate, cul-de-sac. Prove the universal fact, 41 houses, only one street, 41 yards and 82 trees, 41 mowers, all sitting in sheds, 41 families in over their heads, 41 neighbors with nothing to say, building their lives the American way. And everybody's got their own everything, 41 houses, only one street, 41 yards, 82 trees. 41 mowers sitting in sheds, 41 families in over their heads, 41 tables for 41 meals, 4,100 automobiles, 41 neighbors with nothing to say, building their lives the American way, and everybody's got their own everything. I think that's a little more accurate picture of America today, not so much maybe 50 years ago, but it certainly has become that way today. Uh, you know, the street that I live on, 
you know, my one neighbor, they mow their lawn, I mow my lawn, but everybody else that I can see around this neighborhood, I have somebody comes in and mows their lawn, so they don't have a lawnmower sitting in their shed. But, you know, if this was an early church, it would be instead of 41 houses and 41 mowers, and maybe 41 houses, but it would be maybe five mowers, you know, because everybody can't mow their lawn at the same time with one lawnmower. But the gist of this is, you know, we need to have those relationships where we share and communion helps us to do that. But that's not how God has planned it, you know, to be uh, on our own and, you know, not interacting with those around us, uh, not interacting with other believers. You know, Jesus didn't come to die on the cross and raise from the dead so we could become Baptists and Catholics and Methodists and Episcopalians and, you know, independent believers. Uh, he came to start the church and for us to commune together, to worship together, to work together. You know, our, the church that we go to is, you know, probably about five miles at the most. And we go past uh, probably six or seven churches. Now, if it was things were being done as they were in the early church, uh, there may be half as many churches, and each one of those churches would be packed. You know, the only reason that there would be a new church built was because the other one just wouldn't accommodate any more people. Not because this church believes a little bit different than the one down the street, and that church believes a little different than the other one down the street. And, uh, you know, this church, you know, they, they believe in guitars and drums, and uh, this other church, you know, they've got a pipe organ. And so, you know, that's one reason why there's different churches. So one thing that, that gets me is that we can see five or six or more ministries all doing the same thing. You know, why not be working as one and accomplishing much more? You know, adopting a child overseas, you know, we've got Compassion International and World Vision and we're part of the 411 project and, you know, there's a bunch out there, you know work together. You know, you're all trying to accomplish the same thing. You know, why not pool your resources and your intelligence and your technology and all and do it and accomplish much more. In places where we've served, there's been ecumenical services. Uh, the last place we served uh, during Lent, uh, I think it was five weeks that we would have these services. And all the churches in the area were invited. Uh, some choose not to participate for whatever reason. Um, and so these churches or these services moved from church to church. Okay, they'd be in the Catholic Church one week. They'd be in, there was a bunch of United Methodist churches. So they'd be in this one United Methodist church one week, and then they'd be in another church. And um, unfortunately, uh, the mind of, many people was, well, when it's in my church, I'll go, but I'm not going to those other churches, okay? That was not God's plan either. God would expect us to go from one to the other 
and you know, be there in the love of our brothers and sisters. Well, I mentioned World Communion Sunday briefly early on, and that was an, an attempt to bring believers together. It started in 1933 by the Presbyterian Church to promote a sense of Christian unity. Okay, it's first Sunday in October, and you know, again, when it was done as an ecumenical thing, it was attended by few. And when are we going to get it that that's not what God wants, that that's not God's plan? Well, enough of my ranting, okay, and back to the topic at hand, communion. So I said we'd look at the Last Supper, the beginning of communion. Well, Luke 22, verse 7, says, then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb was had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Okay, now the day of unleavened bread marked the beginning of Passover, and it was a Thursday, uh, what we refer to now as Holy Thursday or Monday Thursday. Uh, so Jesus gave specific instructions as to where they were eat, would eat this meal. You know, told them to go and find this guy, and he would tell them where they needed to go. And, you know, John and Peter, they found things just exactly as Jesus had described. So then in verse 13, it says they prepared the Passover. Just like it had been done for hundreds of years. Then beginning in verse 14, it says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now, I can imagine the apostles reclining there, thinking, Oh, He's talking again about this suffering. I just don't know what he's talking about, you know. And what does he mean? He's gonna not gonna eat the Passover again until the kingdom of God is fulfilled. You know, he's gonna eat it with us again next year. And then everything changes from the normal Passover. What these men were expecting, they all knew the ritual. They knew the words that were to be said by the one that was leading. But Jesus changes everything from what they expected. Verses 19 and 20 says, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And they got to be thinking, where's this come from, man? That's not how it's supposed to be. You know, Jesus, we did Passover before and he knew what to say, but, you know, this is really different. Now they'd heard him speak about his body being the bread and his blood being the wine. Uh, John 6, verses 54 to 56. And Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up 
at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. And so they had to be having a flashback to that moment and saying, you know, he talked about this before, but man, that's not Passover. You know, I'm not sure where this is coming from. And they remembered Jesus saying that. And they remembered, too, that because Jesus said that, that there was a number of people that no longer followed him. Now, I, I believe that if many churchgoers read or heard this, they'd maybe question Jesus today. You know, I mean, oh, what's Jesus talking about? You know, that just doesn't sound right. So Jesus set up a whole new thing. Bread equaled his body. Wine or juice equaled his blood. Now bread, that was a staple in their diet. They ate it every day with every meal. Okay, that was something that they knew that they could count on. If they didn't have any meat, they didn't have any vegetables of any kind, they knew that there would probably be some bread. And wine, it was a drink at every table. Not wine as we know it today. at a very low alcohol content. And they drank it because in a lot of places, the water wasn't drinkable. And so they had to have something else. And so this uh, everyday wine took the place of that. So at every meal, they would be reminded of Jesus his broken body, his shed blood for them. His broken body, his shed blood for us. At that time, the apostles couldn't figure that out. But they did very soon. That is why we celebrate communion, to remember Jesus, who he is, what he did that no one else could do. Communion is not a distraction from a worship service. It's a pinnacle of worship, and it's meant to be a shared experience. On different occasions, instead of having communion at the end of the service, which was normal, um, or seen as normal by most people, I guess, I would put it in the middle of the service. And, you know, to me, that made it so much more meaningful than just kind of, oh yeah, we're going to have communion, you know, after everything else is done. But I want to share the words of another song with you. Uh, the title of it is, Come Share the Lord. It says, we gather here in Jesus' name. His love is burning in our hearts like living flame. For through the loving Son, the Father makes us one. Come take the bread Come drink the cup, come share the Lord. He joins us here. He breaks the bread. The Lord who pours the cup is risen from the dead. The one we love the most is now our gracious host. Come take the bread, come drink the cup, come share the Lord. We'll gather soon where angels sing. We'll see the glory of our Lord and coming King. Now we anticipate the feast for which we wait. Come take the bread, come drink the cup, come share the Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, I give you thanks that you have given us this to uh, help us to become one, to help us to uh, share in who you are with our brothers and sisters. And Lord, to be used as a thing to, to draw us closer together and to draw us closer to you. Lord, I know of people that uh, sometimes wouldn't come up for communion. And Lord, when I questioned them, they said, yes, I don't feel worthy. And I tell them, nobody here is worthy. We're not worthy of this, and we're not. We're still not. So, Father, help us to put that aside and just to realize that it was done for us in our unworthiness. And that when Jesus instituted that, that Last Supper, that First Communion, that, Lord, he, he meant it to be uh, meaningful. And so, Father, help us to make sure that it's meaningful to us. And Lord, I lift up anyone that may be listening to this that really doesn't know anything about you. Or maybe they do know a lot about you, but they've never believed. They've never made that commitment that they need to make. They may be gone to church for years and years, and they've heard sermon after sermon, and they've heard scripture, maybe read a lot of scripture themselves, but they've never seen where they needed you in their lives. Lord, let them see that right now, they need to have that commitment. They need to have that relationship, the most important relationship that they'll ever have, more than having a spouse or having children. Uh, the, the, Lord, the relationship uh, through your son is what they need. And let them pray like this. Dear Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. Thank you for sending Jesus, who died for my sins, that I could spend eternity with you and I could have the Holy Spirit to live in me that I could do more for you while I'm still here. Father, help me to not try to understand, but Lord, to accept what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.